Hello from Austin, Texas. This is the National Security Law Podcast, episode number four, A New Hope. Well, I guess that's a better title than Stop Trying to Make the Logan Act Happen. Oh, I like that. Let's change it. <laughs> I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek. And Bobby, I'm, I'm tired. I'm really fracking tired. Why are you tired, Steve? There seems to be a lot of news um, every day in the national security space and in the, the public uh, relations space, public policy, government functioning Etc. Is that right? I'm, hold on. I'm going to go on Twitter and just see. I haven't been on for a few weeks. Let me. Oh, well, there's an account you should follow. Wait. So, first, you should follow NSL Podcast on Twitter. Yes. But also, definitely. there's this guy, Real Donald Trump. Apparently, he tweets a lot. Let me check here. Holy cow. You're right. All right. I'm going to have to take a little time tonight to go over, catch up on some of this. Yeah, there has been a lot going on. Apparently, certainly... he won an election. That's yes. what I learned from Twitter this morning. I, I think the, the main effect here has been to create lots of things for us to talk about on this podcast. <laughs> what, are we, what are we going to talk about today? What are we going to talk about today? So uh, we, I think we're going to talk about the, the rise and rapid fall of Mike Flynn as the National Security Advisor. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. There's a, there's a law school exam's worth of national security law questions Ugh. built into this one. What and, else, Bobby? Um, actually, I was hoping I could induce you to give us a bit of a preview about next Tuesday's Supreme Court oral argument in the Hernandez case. Um, so I can do that with the caveat that I'm co-counsel to the petitioners, and so everything I say is even more biased than usual. Excellent. Okay, well, <laughs> with that clarified and made and made uh, manifest, uh, is and, there anything else? Maybe we should talk about the, uh, the PRBs? Talk about the Guantanamo Periodic Review Boards. Talk about maybe uh, pitchers and catchers reporting for spring training, and there's your new hope. Oh, and, and how about when we get to that? Let's talk a little bit about fantasy baseball. Okay. Fantasy baseball. Yes. Oh gosh, it's All gonna right. be it's gonna be a long thirty minutes, everybody. How about a podcast league? A podcast. league. If any of our three listeners might want to, you know, play. So we'll we'll explore that later. My mom doesn't play fantasy baseball. <laughs> so on to on to the serious stuff first. Let's. Let's talk about uh, the demise of, of Mike Flynn from the National Security Advisor position. Uh, Steve, first, maybe a, as a sort of a top-level overview, we are going to assume here that listeners, if you're listening to this, that I'm pretty sure you've also been reading the news and you know the basic fact pattern. Um, what I'd love to get on the table before we dive into the details is uh, mapping out the distinct sequence of, of legal issues that are each kind of a bucket of issues we should talk about. Sure. So, I mean, I think what we're going to talk about first is the Logan Act, which I think we'll dispatch with fairly quickly. Um, there are other questions about Flynn and whether, for example, he might face liability for making false statements to the FBI. Bobby, maybe there's any other prospect of legal difficulty arising out of his conversations with Russian diplomatic officials. Um, Bobby, then there's the leak itself mm -hmm. um, and the question of whether it revealed perhaps some kind of unlawful surveillance. I think we both think the answer is no. Right. Um, and also whether those who are responsible for the leak might themselves be held to account as part of a leak investigation. Okay, so, so basically if we're outlining this on an issue spotter, we're going to have <laughs> four, four subjects to deal with. The, the legality of his underlying discussions, uh, the way he interacted with the FBI afterwards, the legality of the surveillance that captured those communications, and then somebody leaked this what are the legal implications there? That's, and, that's and just a lot. just and punchline everybody. One and three are easy. Two and four are hard. Excellent. Okay, that, this actually might have to. Do you think our students are listening? Doubtful. Shoot, we can't probably put this on the exam if we just talk. I about really it. don't want to ask an exam question about the Logan Act. <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, let's let's kill it by talking about it now, and then we'll feel like we can't ask them about and it. And for the record, if you look at the sixth edition of the Dicus et al. National Security Law Casebook, there is indeed a, a fascinating discussion of the Logan Act. Um, so, Bobby, the Logan Act. <laughs> Fascinating? Discussion uh, of the Logan Act? Is that a combination that really can go together? This week? 
All right, yeah, actually, this week it certainly can. So the Logodak. So the Logodak is a $17.99. That's not a typo. I guess you can't really have a typo on a podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, statute, it was enacted by the Federalists. Uh, think Alexander Hamilton and John Adams and all that good stuff. Um, to go after a Pennsylvania doctor named George Logan, who took it upon himself. Logan was a, a Jeffersonian, a Democratic Republican in, in that time period, um, who took it upon himself to try to conduct diplomatic relations with the French government, which at the time was not exactly the best friend of the Federalists. The Federalists were more <laughs> positively disposed toward the Brits. Um, Congress was pissed off. Congress passed the statute codified today at 18 U.S.C., Section 953, um, and that statute says, quote, any citizen of the United States, wherever he may be, who, and Bobby, here's an important phrase, without authority of the United States, yeah, mark that. directly or indirectly commences or carries on any correspondence or intercourse with any foreign government, get your minds out of the gutter, or any officer or agent thereof, with intent to influence the measures or conduct of any foreign government or of any officer or agent thereof in relation to any disputes or controversies with the United States, or to defeat the measures of the United States, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than three years or both. All right, so there are many reasons oh. to see why this is not probably a serious legal issue for the... You know, we're talking here about the fact that Mike Flynn, as the uh, the designated to be national security advisor, uh, post election but not yet in office, uh, the conversations he had. Um, one that jumps out at me is something that you pointed out here that th this act only criminalizes sort of what we might call diplomatic interference mm -hmm. or dip diplomatic uh, impertinence, even <laughs> uh, if you do not have the authority of the United States. Now, at, at a minimum. We, we can certainly say that someone who's uh, in office seems to be acting under color of the authority of the United States. Someone who has no connection whatsoever to the government in office uh, does not. The statute as applied to a person who is going to be, in, in a very real and official sense, is going to be very, very soon mm -hmm. a, a senior government official. What's the best reading of the statute there, Steve? Does this implicitly exclude the, uh, the transitioning in officials? So, so first, we have no idea because the statute has never been applied. Uh, there's been one or two indictments under it, no prosecution, so there's no case law. All right, so more than two centuries... No prosecutions. Which, of this course, raises the problem, of, problem. Of, of desuetude, right? A statute that falls into disuse and moribundity. Love it, desuetude. Uh, hey, there's a great Harvard Law Review note by our mutual friend James Sullivan. That's Shout right. out, James Sullivan. He knew. He, he knew. that. Does, does he actually talk about the Logan Act? He does not or, talk about the Logan Act. Well, so he can write a second article. There we go. Um, anyway, to make a long story short, everybody, I think there's a pretty good argument, as Bobby, I think, suggests, um, that transition officials... Um, who, at least now because of a series of statutes that Congress has passed, actually are exercising some formal authority and not just hypothetical future authority, would make for a tough case under the without authority of the United States prong. That's um, right. I think the same thing applies to members of Congress, um, right? Whether a con if a congressperson goes on a trip um, and does things the president doesn't like, I still think they're acting with the authority of the United States, mm -hmm. right? Because it doesn't say the authority of the president or the executive branch, it says the authority of the government. Right, and so you might, I suppose the argument would be that if you're a member of Congress, and this comes up every now and then when you have someone in a high-profile way, way go abroad, have a discussion. It happened a couple of weeks ago with Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah, exactly. So you have this come up and people say, hey, maybe a Logan Act problem. There is this interpretation. Short answer, question. no. Well, you know, so it's, 
it does seem in contravention of the sole organ doctrine, which, it, so here we're talking about United States versus Curtis Wright Export Corporation. or as, That old chestnut. As, as Harold Coe famously said, the, the, the favorite government executive branch citation, Curtis Wright, so I'm right. Um, which There's a Chris Rock version of that, which isn't as polite. <laughs> I can't, okay, we'll wait till after the podcast <laughs> to tell me that one. So the, the Curtis Wright argument would be that as setting aside the extent to which Curtis Wright goes on and dicta to say all sorts of things about executive power, the, the kind of the hard central core of it that's not actually that controversial is the part about the president having the constitutional responsibility to be the voice of the United States in diplomatic negotiations. And the Logan Act, to a certain extent, is trying to reinforce that. There is something to be said if you buy into that description, that, that John Marshall description from when he was in Congress, not on the court, in Congress, uh, when he talked about the president as sole organ. Yeah, although I think Lou Fisher suggested that we've overread that speech. Well, that's, what, that's why I drew that distinction <laughs> precisely on the off chance that Lou was listening. And I, th- I know he would not want it thought that it was in an opinion by Marshall. But, but, Bobby, but just to cut to the chase, I mean, I, I do think there's a sole organ issue here. Um, but in this regard, again, I think transition officials oh, are Oh, yeah, no, no, I'm distinct. talking only about Congress. So, so let's save the Congress part, because there are other problems with the Logan Act that I think mean we never even get to this question. Yeah, so talk about those problems. So really quickly, I think the two other problems with the Logan Act is that it's doubly un- unconstitutional under the Supreme Court's modern speech and due process jurisprudence. Um, the speech issue being that it's a content-based regulation of speech. What I mean by that is if Mike Flynn had had the exact same conversation at the exact same time with the exact same people and all they talked about was the weather, it wouldn't violate the Logan Act. Um, well, that to me is the epitome of a content-based restriction on so speech. So it's viewpoint neutral, but it's content-based, which gets us strict scrutiny, but not necessarily fatal strict scrutiny. Not necessarily fatal, but you know, strict scrutiny asks whether the law is narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling government interest. Let's assume the government has a compelling interest in I, protecting I the, the unity of our foreign relations. Absolutely. The law is still remarkably overbroad. Um, right, and I think we're going to have huge narrow tailoring problems. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm more sympathetic with that part of it. Yeah, and uh, and if and if nothing else, this at least even if you're not quite sure, you get there into the First Amendment. What about the due process? The, so right, then there's the vagueness problem, right? Vagueness so vagueness problem. is the principle that uh, criminal laws are unconstitutional if it's not clear to the average uh, potential criminal what they actually prohibit. Bobby, in this case, it's not really clear to me what it means to engage in correspondence that might defeat the measures of the United States. That seems a very open-ended, uh, you might say, vague standard. I, you know, as as applied here, I'm not so sh- as applied here. I'm not sure that's right because this seems a lot like a communication mm-hmm. that could be framed as being very much designed to defeat the then president's very clear foreign policy goals. I, I completely agree, but if you'll allow me to Fed courts nerd out for a second. Oh, go for it, man. Um, so if this were an as-applied challenge, I think, you know, that's right, that Mike Flynn would not have a very good as-applied challenge to the statute. Um, but vagueness, like the First Amendment, is a context in which the Supreme Court has historically embraced facial challenges yes. entirely because of these overbreath concerns, because the potential that the statute is unclear might chill or suppress otherwise constitutionally protected speech and conduct. So Flynn might actually be able to benefit were he ever prosecuted, let's be clear, not going to happen, um, from a facial vagueness defense as opposed to an as-applied challenge. You know, this, this, what you just said was wonderful and it was highly nerdtastic in the best way and it reminds me of how someone on an iTunes review of the podcast gave the best comment we've gotten yet. They said that we've, quote, uh, we've created some kind of exponential nerd storm, which is a great result for the audience. At least, At least it's not logarithmic. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so we've taken care of the Logan Act. We better move on. We've also taken care of the nerd storm. Yes, we have. So the next, so 
I, we said in class the other day, and I, I really believe this is so often the case, it's not the possible crime, it's the cover-up. It's the cover-up. That's, that's such, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but man, does it prove to be true here. And it seems like uh, it's the attempt to deny that these conversations take place that not only created the political conditions within the administration for uh, the, the president and others, especially the vice president, to lose trust in Mike Flynn, uh, but also to create the, the, the potential criminal liability that is a real threat to him, the possibility that Mike Flynn lied to the FBI when investigators queried him about the discussions he'd had uh, in this context. Now, um, I think, Steve, and tell me if you agree, I actually think, now, there's some real jeopardy here. And, and I would think that, um, I'm, I'm not suggesting he should be or will be prosecuted, but this is a much more serious and legitimate question than the Logan Act question. Quite, and indeed the Federal False Statements Act, which if you have Title 18 at the hand, um, is 18 U.S.C. Section 1001, is, is both less antiquated than the Logan Act and far more often enforced. Um, and actually, I think it was Dan Frumkin who said this on Twitter yesterday, um, that one of the things that is most consistent about the FBI even as they do things that folks from one side of the aisle or the other might not like. The FBI does not like being lied to <laughs> by anybody. No, nor should they be. And, and, and it, I, I can't think of a context in which it is more important to ensure that uh, in something of this level of sensitivity, the idea that there's a different standard for the uh, ordinary Joe on the street in terms of lying to the FBI versus versus government officials, that, that's a disturbing idea. I agree. And I also think that the current FBI director may be also under some pressure um, to look even-handed in his uh, approach to these issues, given the criticism he's received for how much uh, of a big deal he made out of uh, then-Secretary Candidate Clinton's emails versus how much he downplayed the, the Russia ties in the run to the election. Yeah, for what it's worth, I think it's overdetermined that the FBI takes deadly seriously the uh, possibility someone's lying to them in the course of an investigation. And, then, and then the real question becomes, did Flynn lie? And obviously, Bobby, we don't know that no, yet. No, we don't have the the facts before us to really offer it. But it is worth noting. I mean, I think it's what one of the things that I found most Bobby surprising about this whole episode is that Flynn does not seem to have realized, at least in his conversations with White House officials, if not the FBI, that there would be records of these phone calls. Um, and that if, 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 if that <laughs> lack of realization on the part of, let's say this again, the National Security Advisor um, led to him misrepresenting what he said to internal folks within the White House, I do wonder if he also might have made similar misrepresentations to the FBI. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. It is it, one of the most striking parts of the story is just the the, the seeming lack of awareness. Uh, when I was in private practice, we uh, represented some banks that would occasionally be alleged to have engaged in, you know, fraud or this or that or the other. And and we in part of my job as a junior associate, we'd sometimes listen to the recorded lines. These traders all know that they're on recorded lines. Sometimes some of the stuff you heard made you realize that, and, and I guess you hear this from from invest, police investigators in organized crime settings where you've got people joking about how this is probably being recorded. But anyways, let's talk now about. So, but in, an, in this case, Flynn really should have known this is and probably is being yeah, recorded. Yeah, I mean, there, there's just no question. So that brings us to the question of: Is there any problem with the legality of the surveillance itself? And this is something I wouldn't thought required discussion, but apparently the Wall Street Journal. Incredibly, in my opinion, they had uh, was it yesterday? yesterday. This uh, this op-ed that basically raised the question of you know shouldn't we be concerned about uh, government surveillance on Americans and and why was uh, where why, are the where are the privacy groups right where where's the ACLU on this and and the the gravamen of the complaint was supposed to be this idea that there's something called minimization procedures with with surveillance and the idea behind minimization as many listeners will already know is that when you're conducting foreign intelligence surveillance and you 
incidentally en encompass a reference to a U.S. person. Their name comes up. There's there's a U.S. person in the communication somehow that you're supposed to minimize that in the sense that you're supposed to put, you know, take their name out, redact that, put in U.S. person one, and uh, and so on, and, and don't promiscuously uh, either keep or circulate the U.S. person's name. Now. This, at first blush, I think caught many people's attention and caused them to say, hmm, that's right, wait, why, is, why are they surveilling Mike Flynn? They're not. They're, they're surveilling a Russian diplomat who is the very paradigm of exactly, if nothing else, if nothing else, FISA orders exist to authorize surveillance of these people. And if an American government official is having a conversation with that agent of a foreign power, that literal agent of a foreign power, about U.S. policy towards that country, it's the very epitome of something that should not be minimized, need not be minimized, either as a constitutional or a statutory or internal policy matter. It's a completely bogus argument to suggest that his name should have been minimized. And just to be clear, everybody, FISA is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978. And if ever, Bobby, there was a clear-cut case of foreign intelligence surveillance, I'm hard-pressed to think of what it is. That's exactly right. I don't think this is even a close call. Nor I. Um, and indeed, uh, yet brings bringing yet further discredit, I think, to those who are trying to make the story about other things than the Russia piece, or Bobby, maybe the leak piece. Okay, so let's turn to that because there, I think, there is an important story. Let's let's be let me back up and be really clear about this. I'm disparaging the argument that there's something wrong with the surveillance. The issue you are looking for, if that's bothering you, the issue you're looking for is to question the leak. Now that's interesting. I think we don't know enough yet to come down very clearly on the legal implications, Steve. And we should talk about what they, what potential legal problems might be. But before we do that. Um, we were, we were talking earlier um, before the show about how the reporting depicted who the leakers were or, or who the confirmers of the leak. It's all kind of vague, right? There's a reference to nine current and former officials, some of whom may be from the IC, the intelligence community, some from the government elsewhere. It's Perhaps even some from the White House. Right. And, and when, you, when you look precisely at how it's all described, it does not say that current members of the intelligence community are the source of this leak. That's right. It's entirely possible it, there is a reference to IC or intelligence community officials. They may be former officials. They may be merely confirming. Although the leak might still be illegal, even if the leakers oh, are, are 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 separated from their their the positions in which they were proxy to this the privy to this information. No, that's right. That's a, that's true enough. That's that's quite true. So I just want to underscore there's there is an attempt out there to kind of fit this into the narrative of it's Trump and his people versus the IC. Maybe, and obviously they're, they're in certain level of generality, that's clearly the part of the surrounding narrative, but it's not completely determined yet that the actual initial source for the Washington Post story uh, came from somebody who's in the IC right now, ostensibly undermining the administration. Right, which, which, which I think matters to our listeners insofar as it suggests that there, we might not yet be at full out, out and out war. Right. between the intelligence community and the White House. Right, and to put it in the way a lot of people are describing it, there's a lot of attempts to say, like, aha, the deep state strikes back. Maybe. I thought this title of the episode was A New Hope. A New, well, yeah, you're right. We're jumping ahead to episode five. I know, that's Marty. next week. The deep state strikes back. I guarantee you that's been used for any number of blog posts. Yeah, probably. Okay, um, so let's talk Wait, we're, about... We're supposed to be original? Oh, yeah. Well, we've got colleagues who do IP. We'll figure that out okay. later. Um, so... Let's talk real quick about what the potential criminal liability might be for whomever did have access to these fruits of communications intelligence. Sure. sure. 
I mean, so, so, there, so again, folks, if you have your Title 18 of the U.S. Code handy, um, the relevant provisions are all part of the Espionage Act, which, of course, was quite controversial during the Obama administration because we saw a real uptick in leak prosecutions and investigations. Um, the two provisions that tend to come up most often in the context of these kinds of leak investigations are 18 U.S.C. 793-D um, and 18 U.S.C. 798. 793-D is really about information related to the national security, um, so classified information. Bobby, it's not clear that this was, um, that the contents right here were classified. Right. Okay. So this is an important distinction. We we don't know exactly what was said yep. on these on these uh, commun in this phone call. We do know that it had to do with sanctions. At that point, that's become clear. Right. Um, it, but not not like some top secret fighter jet or submarine or or, yeah, or the names it, of U.S. agents in Moscow. It's not at all obvious to me from the context, knowing that much, that anything that was said was the sharing by Mike Flynn of classified information with the Russians. Um, that's not the nature of what the complaint about it about that activity is. The activity there that people complaining about, first and foremost, is the not owning up to that when it, when people started asking. And then secondly, underneath that, just the, the general uh, potential, and I'm not sure I'm convinced this is improper, for the incoming administration to actually be laying the groundwork for a policy change. That's right. They, that, no. That's within their rights. To... A policy change that's all in the public record, right? I mean, you know. Right. It's not a secret here. That right. They were gonna so, so, so I actually think even though 793D is often the focus of leak investigations, I actually think in yeah. this case, Bobby, it's more about 798. That's right. So let's talk about 798, which I think is where the focus ought to be. I don't think it likely that it fits here. I think it's the closest call. So let's talk about, uh, first let's share with our readers, under 18 U.S. Code 798. Sub subsection A. Yeah, subsection A. Whoever knowingly, willfully, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gloss over the endless verbiage here, uh, willfully communicates or otherwise makes available to an unauthorized person, okay, check and check, uh, what? Uh, it uses in any manner prejudicial to the safety or interest of the United States or for the benefit of any foreign government to the detriment of the United States. Check. Any class, well, that, that's where I think we might disagree. Um, let me actually back up, because I'm not sure I've made it too clear. The, the way it's framed is there are certain types of classified information that are covered here. There's four categories. Um, and this is all sort of related to SIGINT or signals intelligence, communications intelligence. The first two have to do with crypto, cryptographic systems. That's, that's not relevant here. Uh, the third one, uh, if you're sharing information that concerns communication intelligence activities of the U.S. or a foreign government, well, that's not what Mike Flynn was doing. Um, I mean, sorry, we're not talking about Flynn now, right? The we're leakers. talking about the leakers. Um, they weren't. Well, I guess you could say they were doing that, I guess. Yeah. yeah they were doing that. And then four, um, sharing... I, mean, I, mean, I, don't, I don't think it will come as any great shock to the Russian ambassador to the United States that the U.S. is engaged right. in... But nonetheless, that fact is certainly a properly classified right. fact. Um, more importantly is the fit subcategory A4. Uh, when the information is, quote, obtained by the processes of communications intelligence from the communications of any foreign government. And, and that's... That's what the leakers were very much sharing. So they're they're sharing the right kind, or shall we say, the wrong kind yeah. of covered classified information. But to go back to the part I inartfully began reading to the listeners, it only counts as a crime when the person knowingly does this in a manner prejudicial to the safety or interest of the United States, or for the benefit of a foreign government. Now, I would think that if I represented whoever these people turned out to be, I would say it's quite the opposite on both counts. I would argue that. 
this is certainly not for the benefit. It's it's in fact very contrary to the benefit. Sorry, the it here being the the substance of Flynn's conversations right. with revealing, the Russians. Right. Revealing this to the Post right. not only didn't advance a foreign government's equities, it very much undermined the Russian government's equities. Mm -hmm. So so you're okay on that dimension. And then as far as injuring the interest of the United States, 180 degrees the opposite. That this was an effort to protect the United States against you know some kind of problem. So, now that's obviously deeply contestable. I was right? going to I agree I agree with that. But think about what the Trump administration is already saying, right? It's already saying that this is a damaging leak, right? It's already saying that this is, you know, something that has undermined the US relationship with Russia. If that's the government's position, I think that would be the theory on which such a prosecution would be predicated. So I think what's interesting about this from a criminal defense perspective is there seems to be a lot of room for reasonable disagreement about the injury factor here, which is widely recognized for the statute to be one reason why it's hard to charge this. And, and, indeed, and it's seldom invoked. Exactly. And, and at a certain point, you have to say, like, is a reasonable person on notice that this particular leak... Back to the actually, Logan Act. Yeah, it's a similar, a similar discussion. Now, I, I think where I come down is it's not beyond the realm of reasonable prosecution. But I would not consider this a slam dunk. Do we say slam dunk anymore? Is that phrase entirely uh, ruined by uh, you know the WMD stuff back in the day? I think we could still say slam dunk. Okay, so that, I would say this case is not a slam dunk. Um, so not as not a slam dunk. I think there are lots of political reasons why it would never be brought. Yeah, um, so right? if we move beyond the, the statutory parsing and talk about why this ain't going to happen anyway. Right, because, you know, first of all, you don't want to declare open war against the intelligence committee or whoever it is who leaked it. Second, it's entirely possible that the Wait, see, you don't want to. Maybe you and I wouldn't, but okay. might, might the White House or the, might Attorney General it, Sessions? It depends field? on who it is, right? I mean, it, it really depends on who the leaker is and on what they're trying to, what, what example they're trying to make yeah. out of him. Yeah. Um, second, there is always the risk in a leak prosecution that you run into the airing of dirty baggage. Um, right now, there are protections in place to protect against gray mail, right? Mm -hmm. This is the, the defendant's ability to try to use classified information against the government. But there's still the specter of having this all be played out in a high visibility, high profile criminal trial in Alexandria, Virginia. Mm. I don't think that's a mess this government wants. Could be. It could be. Um, I think we've not heard the last of this story. All right, so let's end the discussion for now of, of the Flynn story. I, th I think that for now is right, because I don't think we're done. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, can you give us a quick preview of this really important Supreme Court case that's going to take place next week? You're involved as, as a, a co-counsel, so that you know, take it all with that in mind. But um, just <laughs> what, give us What I have to say does not necessarily represent the position of Hernandez or his counsel. <laughs> and I'll add that I have not yet read all the opposing briefs, so I'm, I don't feel ready to, to give you any pushback. And in, indeed, I might agree. Who knows? We'll find out next Tuesday. Indeed. So super short version. This is actually a sort of interesting coincidence that this is the first case the Supreme Court's hearing during the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. um, Sergio Hernandez was a 15-year-old Mexican national, that part's undisputed, mm -hmm. um, who alleges in his complaint, or at least his parents and his heirs allege in their complaint, um, that he was unarmed and walking away across the culvert um, that used to be the Rio Grande separating El Paso from Ciudad Juarez when he was shot by a Customs and Border Patrol officer, Agent Mesa, um, in what the complaint alleges was an unprovoked, unjustified use of excessive lethal force. Um, Hernandez's family sued Agent Mesa and the United States for damages on the ground that the shooting was both a violation of tort law and then it was also a violation of the Fourth and Fifth Amendments. Ah, that, therein lies the interesting issue. And therein right? lies the interesting issue. So putting aside the claims against the U.S. which were dismissed at the district court level mm -hmm. and not appealed, the question is whether a 15-year-old Mexican national literally feet across the border can bring a Fourth and or Fifth Amendment claim against a Customs and Border Patrol agent 
standing on U.S. soil when, at least according to the complaint, he unjustifiably shoots the unarmed Mexican national. So my immediate reaction is I see both questions of justiciability and immunity and so forth, and does Bivens apply, which I gather is, is part of the main focus, but will they be reaching the merits or potentially reaching the merits on the question of whether a non-citizen who is outside the United States, though in this case hit by a bullet fired from within the United States, are they going to reach the question of whether that person has Fourth and Fifth Amendment? So I don't know if the justices are going to reach the question, Bobby, but they granted cert on it. Um, okay. So the two questions that were presented in the cert petition were whether the very formalistic on-off switch bright line rule of Chief Justice Rehnquist's opinion for the court in this 1990 case, Verdugo or applies to such a cross-border shooting. Verdugo or held that the Fourth Amendment did not apply to a search by DEA agents of a Mexican national's home well into the Mexican countryside. Um, or whether the more functional approach that Justice Kennedy first articulated in his concurring opinion in Verdugo Requides, and then he came back to, obviously, much more prominently in his majority opinion in 2008 in the Bumedian Guantanamo habeas case applies, in which case we actually have to balance some factors that might really militate in favor of applying the Fourth and Fifth Amendments in this context. So that was the first question presented in the cert petition. Yeah. The Supreme Court granted on it. Now, Bobby, you're right. The case also presents a qualified immunity question. Um, which is even if uh, Hernandez had Fourth Amendment rights and even if he's entitled to a cause of action, was it clearly established at the time he was shot that what Agent Mesa was doing was illegal? Mm -hmm. And as you say, there's a Bivens question, which the justices added, which is whether the courts even have the authority to create, to recognize a self-executing non-statutory cause of action for damages. So a lot going on in this case. I, you know, The only way they get to the Fourth Amendment question is if they're willing to say, yes, there's Bivens and no, there's no qualified immunity. Um, but given that the Fifth Circuit threw this case out on qualified immunity grounds, the grant of certiorari suggests that maybe they are interested in the merits. Maybe, so four votes to grant. Uh, we got eight justices for now. Um, what happens, Steve, if uh, Neil Gorsuch is confirmed before the ruling's mm -hmm. issued? Will he get to take part? Is there a tradition that cuts one way or the other? So there's, there's, there's no rule, yeah. right? Um, the, the rule that applies in the federal courts is as long as you're on the court by the time the decision's handed down, you are legally allowed to participate. But the norm and the tradition on the yeah. Supreme Court has always been that justices do not vote in cases in which they don't hear argument. Interesting. Okay, so we'll, we'll come back to this issue once we've got the oral argument to listen to. Let's, let's wrap uh, the substantive discussion by mentioning, at least briefly, the, the periodic review board business, which, which comes up uh, for many reasons. One is we all have been waiting and watching to see if the Trump administration would issue an executive order uh, repealing the Obama executive order that, that sets up and constitutes the current periodic review board process. This, this is for Guantanamo detainees, right? right? This yeah. is Executive Order 13-567. And, and to be clear, the, the basic idea here is that, yes, you have the habeas corpus process to litigate questions of whether the person factually really is who the government claims they are, whether the law really extends to that fact pattern. This is a separate system. This is the administrative process, and, and currently under the current law, it's an uh, interagency process. We have representatives from the military, but also, I think, state and DHS and others, the intelligence community, uh, deciding whether on, on a periodic basis, should we still keep this person not not challenging the original grounds for detention, but is it... And not saying that they're no longer subject to detention. No, exactly. Just saying as a matter of policy, does it make sense at this point either to let them go outright or to transfer them safely to the custody of another country? And Bobby, what kind of, what kind of question are, is the PRB asking to make that determination? They're asking about future uh, dangerousness, future mm -hmm. dangerousness. Is there still 
the, the core of the inquiry is, is, is there a safe circumstance in which someone else can held, hold him or indeed he could not be held at all? And on that basis, the PRB process under Obama has, in fact, uh, approved the release of a number of detainees, and this has been a huge flashpoint. And I think we all think the Trump administration sooner or later is bound to get around to at least suspending and examining the current process. And I think you and I both think probably they're going to narrow, if not, you know, maybe just suspend it altogether. And, and just to be clear, guys, part of why the PRB process is so important is because it is the mechanism through which Guantanamo detainees go from being in the category of being subject to indefinite detention to being eligible for transfer, at least under the rules as the Obama administration articulated them. And the data is pretty revealing, Bobby. I mean, these are folks who are left after the habeas cases, mm -hmm. after all of the first and second generation transfers. And of the 64 detainees for whom the PRB has issued decisions to date, it's cleared, and by cleared I mean approved for transfer, mm -hmm. 38 of them, right? right? I mean, that's 60%. Yeah, and so again, let's be real clear, this is not a determination in those cases that it was a mistake or illegal or not warranted by the evidence to hold any of these people. It's that now, at whatever point in time we've now reached, it makes sense there are conditions you could release that person or transfer them for continued custody. Let's, you know, a lot of these cases, the recommendation is not that, oh, let this person go. It's this person's better held in such and such a country in their facilities. But at least, if nothing else, it was a path to, it was a procedural path to get folks from the category of not going anywhere yep. to some disposition where, where at least they're no longer right. a problem. And, and I'll further add that um, an earlier version of this existed in the Bush administration, the ARBs. Was that annual or administrative? administrative. The administrative re review board process in many respects, a very similar process, certainly the, the same type of idea. And loads of people were released pursuant to that process. So this is how we've kind of been doing it for, you know, a decade and a half at this point. But, Bobby, there's one really interesting feature of Executive Order 13567 that I think a lot of folks don't realize, um, which is that it only applies to detainees who were at Guantanamo on the day the executive order was issued. So, in theory, it creates some kind of entitlement to that procedure on the part of those detainees, but not new ones. Yeah, and, and you know, so... Uh, a person coming at that first blush might say, well, gosh, Obama, why wouldn't he have made it applicable to all future detainees? But of course, that question answers itself. Obama didn't want there to be any future detainees. And indeed would have received a lot of pressure, both internally and externally, uh, pushing back against any language that even embraced oh, yeah. the possibility. Oh, he would have been demonized as you know, further institutionalizing the regime. You but, know? It, but in this case, the irony is that actually makes it less important, I think, from the perspective of the new administration to repeal the PRB executive order because on its face it won't apply to new detainees if and when they're sent to Guantanamo. It, it is, so descriptively right now, new detainee shows up there, there's no current PRB system that would legally... Right, just habeas. Yeah, right. But um, I think they're gonna, the symbolism here is hugely important to the administration. And so there is, uh, and we see some evidence of this, there's already some pressure on them because they haven't moved quicker on it. A group of senators, uh, Moran from Kansas, uh, Tom Cotton's in on this, a bunch of senators sent a letter to the administration saying, just a reminder, you really need to uh, suspend and I think uh, get rid of, or at least modify the PRB process. Although just to be clear, it's not clear to me how big of a problem this is, even from their perspective. There are exactly two of the 41 detainees at Guantanamo right now who have been cleared by the PRBs, right? right. So, so, so two who are now at least under those rules in that cleared right. for transfer framework along with those who are still left. Right, and there, there seems little chance, I'd I say basically zero chance, zero. the administration is gonna actually act on transferring them out. I think what you're gonna- About the same chance as, as Mike Flynn being prosecuted under the Logan Act. 
Yeah, that's it. That's about, that's about <laughs> right. Now, we do think that eventually there will be some new detainees brought to Guantanamo. And, and so this question will be out there. Um, I do think as, as a matter of sensible policy, of course you want to have some kind of review process um, periodically. The question that's interesting is who exactly should have a seat at the table and what should be the marching orders for those people in terms of calibrating their sense of how much risk to take? There's no question, I think, that the Trump administration feels you had too many voices at the table that weren't focused enough on the recidivism risk and that there was a, there's clearly a general perception that, fair or not, there's a perception that the existing PRB process had been too uh, willing to run risk in that respect. There's that. That's probably not fair to the people involved. But I, I would I say that's definitely not fair. Yeah, I, I just don't have enough. You know, I don't know who they were or exactly how they understood their risk. Quite. Um, but I don't doubt that there's going to be some effort to signal to them that, well, first of all, I wouldn't be surprised if they revised this thing so that only military members and maybe also CIA members or officers uh, have a seat at the table. And uh, they'll probably get some direct admonition to be more cautious on recidivism. But I think all this guys just to say, stay tuned, because there's clearly going to be movement on this front sooner rather than later. Yep. Um, and so our hope is simply to lay the groundwork so that when we come back to it in episode 9 or 10, we're going to run out of Star Wars yes, jokes by right, then. Right. Um, maybe we'll have music by then. Um, <laughs> Don't we, hold your breath. We will at least have, have given you some introduction and preview of what's, what's coming. Well, speaking of laying the groundwork, spring training's underway. And, spring uh, training is underway. Pitchers and catchers have reported. So this, get, this got me thinking earlier today about uh, what kind of fancy baseball league we're going to have. I was thinking only about faculty here at UT, but uh, you know, do, if, if you're listening and you're interested, you know, we'll, we'll see what kind of level of interest. If we end up with eight or nine people that want to want to get an, uh, an online draft going, maybe we'll have a National Security Law podcast. And, and maybe the winner of the league gets a special guest appearance on the podcast. <laughs> to, to just humiliate us for our bad uh, baseball drafting strategies. I like it. You know, the problem with fantasy baseball is it's so much work. Like, fantasy football, you know, if you pay attention maybe two days a week, you can actually have a pretty good team, right? Fantasy baseball, man, you got to be on that every day. See, I, I knew there's things we disagree about. That, that's totally backwards and wrong. The, the right way to think of it is, Fantasy football is kind of boring because it hardly matters what you do. You barely have to pay attention. Fancy, That's nuts. Fantasy baseball rewards you for daily attention. <laughs> Bobby, I don't have time. Remember exactly. The this, is my, this is my comparative advantage. You're much busier than I am. This is my chance <sighs> to, to, to you know, take you on the diamond. Well, I, I mean, you beat me everywhere else, so right. why, should base, why should fantasy baseball be any yeah, different? Yeah. Yeah, another thing you're wrong about there. <laughs> well, on that uplifting note, why don't we just say that it's about 5 o'clock Central Time, Central Time, of course, being the best time, <laughs> on Wednesday, February 15th. Uh, this is episode four of the National Security Law Podcast. A new hope. A new hope. Uh, thanks for stopping by, and we hope you'll check back in next week. Adios. Stay safe out there, everybody.